Mr. Cheney, are you ready to take the oath? I am. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, James Danforth Quayle. I, Michael Richard Pence. I, Spiro Theodore Agnew. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. do solemnly swear. Welcome to the 14th episode of Running Mates. As always, I'm your host, Lars Emerson, joined by my co-host, Mike Levito. 14 episodes, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of elections. It's too many elections. How many candidates per person is that? After these episodes, it'll have been 218 candidates. That's a lot. That's a lot. This is the podcast where we look at every presidential election through the lens of vice presidential picks and talk about who they should have chosen instead. We're finally here, Mike. The election we've spent years thinking about what... What on earth could we have done differently? (laughs) The election of 2016. Because of the stakes, complications, and recency of this election, we're going to once again split this episode into two parts, just like we did with our 2000 episode. There's a lot going on in this election, and a lot of things at play, and since it's both the most recent election of memory and an incredibly close one, we want to unpack it as thoroughly as we can with our usual focus on vice presidential picks. So that's twice the fun for you. And in this first episode, we're going to set the stage for 2016, explain how each party came to nominate Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, why they picked their respective running mates, and how the election unfolded from there. We'll then talk about our alternative picks for Trump's pick, Mike Pence, and close out with what happened to Pence. Next week, in our part two, we will go into the alternative VP picks for Hillary Clinton, talk about what happened to her pick, Tim Kaine, and end with our big conclusions on this election and the running mates. So here we go. Let's get down with election 2016. Pence versus Kane, part one. To set the scene for 2016, two years prior, in 2014, incumbent President Barack Obama suffers another devastating midterm, and his Democratic Party loses control of the Senate, putting the entire Congress under Republican control. This coincides with a wave of unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, after the fatal shooting of African-American Michael Brown at the hands of police. Having lost full control of Congress, despite seeking an increasing policy focus on police brutality, gun control, and other domestic issues, President Obama and Democrats are blocked by Republicans at every turn in Congress. So Obama turns to the one place the presidents have a lot of authority without Congress, foreign policy. He negotiates a groundbreaking Iran deal, which would deter and cease Iran's nuclear ambitions for 15 years, with the aim to ease sanctions on Iran as they complied with inspections. All five permanent members of the UN Security Council, which I remind you includes both Russia and China as well, (laughs) as France, the UK, the US, plus then they got Germany and the European Union at large, and of course Iran, to agree to the deal. The global leadership was united. It's just baffling you got in a deal and like China and Russia, just the entire world agreed this was yeah. the right thing to do. Yeah. Also in foreign policy news, Obama signs the U.S. onto the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, seeking to limit global temperature averages under 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Once again, this is another giant international agreement with near-universal acceptance. And of course, in early 2016, the Obama administration signs onto the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a giant free trade agreement between many large Pacific Rim countries, excluding China, including substantive agreements on labor and environmental protections. The purpose here was to strengthen democracy in the region, strengthen the rule of law, and increase U.S. leadership in the region to diversify trade away from China and generally counter the growing influence of China in the Pacific. As 2016 goes on, Congress, however, denies the TPP an up or down vote as it becomes clear that many in President Obama's own party were opposed and both parties' presidential primaries gave it few defenders. Unfortunately, to editorialize a little here, free trade, as always, is very easy to blame and not very sexy to defend. Finally, As if that weren't all enough going into an election year, conservative Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia dies, leaving a vacancy on the nation's highest court. The very same day, in fact only an hour after Scalia's death was confirmed, the now Senate Majority Leader, Republican Mitch McConnell, declares that the Senate would not consider any nomination made by Obama because it was an election year and it should be the next president's prerogative. Wait for the body to cool, Mitch. (laughs) This all, of course, is also not true. Obama was currently the president. He would be president for about a year more, and yeah, that's just not a thing. 
Obama, waiting a more respectful month, nominates a, a relatively respected, moderate, and old judge Merrick Garland, who never gets a Senate hearing because McConnell blocks him, and thus the court was hobbled for nearly a year, forced to take on primarily non-controversial issues, and a vacant Supreme Court seat hung over the year and, of course, over the impending presidential election itself. Once again, to editorialize and go on a little mini-tangent, but because we're now in another election year, because it'll give a little more context to McConnell's gambit here. So a couple months ago, in May 2020, McConnell said that if one of the Supreme Court justices died this year, he said with a grin that he would absolutely fill that seat, thus breaking his own rule. Yeah. What a little trickster, that guy. <laughs> That's um, one way to put it. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot going on this year. So let's check in on those primaries. I'm getting ready to do something too. I'm running for president. On the Democratic side, in 2015, like it or not, we were ready for Hillary. Former Secretary of State, former New York Senator, and former First Lady Hillary Clinton enters the Democratic primary. This had been speculated about and largely assumed for years, as Clinton had a 67% national approval rating. Incumbent Vice President Joe Biden toyed with a run, but Clinton's strong frontrunner status, she was miles ahead of Biden in all polls, and the tragic death of Biden's son, Beau, ultimately led him to conclude that this was not his time. However, Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders enters the race to challenge Clinton from the left wing of the party, a party that he's, of course, not a member of. He's critical of Clinton's more moderate approach to foreign policy, trade, business, and the economy, and while Clinton runs on experience, her achievements, and leaning more heavily into identity politics, you know, she's acknowledging her historic candidacy more so than she did in the more gender-neutral 2008 campaign. Fighting for affordable childcare and paid family leave is playing the woman card, then deal me in! Sanders is running on more of a left-wing, anti-Wall Street, populist platform. So it felt like he kind of became the candidate of, like, the Occupy movement, like, five years after the Occupy movement was like a thing. Yeah, yeah. Very much that same kind of group. The other major candidate, who sticks it out until at least the Iowa caucuses, is former Maryland governor and cool guy, Martin O'Malley. <laughs> He's just like a super cool guy. I got to hang out with him in an elevator once. It was like a great moment in my life. <laughs> um, the Iowa caucuses delivered a very narrow win for Clinton. We're talking 49.8% of the vote to 49.6% to Sanders. It also goes to show just how like two-sided this election was, that they each got almost 50% and no one else got even close. Mm -hmm. Then Sanders wins a compelling victory in New Hampshire, and Clinton's status as the front runner is kind of put in doubt. However, once the race moved into the South in the South Carolina and Super Tuesday primaries, Clinton scored far better among African Americans and other minorities. Fun fact, she actually got more of the African American vote in South Carolina than Barack Obama did in the 2008 between him and Clinton two cycles ago. Hmm. This allowed Clinton to mount a delegate lead that remained relatively small but steady over the rest of the primary. Primary. Sanders actually raised more money than Hillary Clinton, which is somewhat ironic given his campaign's attempts to portray her as in bed with Wall Street and like the general horrors of money in politics, and tended to do better in western, wider states. But Clinton also had a much larger core of superdelegate endorsements, though I will note that she actually had more delegates and votes overall. Superdelegates did not in any way throw this election. Due to the Democrats' proportional allegation of delegates, it became more and more improbable for Sanders to win over the last months of the campaign, as Clinton ultimately had 55% of the vote compared to Sanders' 43% and had won far more contests overall. As the end of the primary neared, Sanders stuck through even once Clinton was the presumptive nominee, having secured over a majority of delegates, something which became increasingly bitter as time went on, as Sanders stayed in the running even through the final DC primary in mid-June. Sanders did release a video thereafter saying the priority was now to defeat the Republican candidate, but it would be a month until Sanders ultimately endorsed Clinton. Clinton, having won the, if not mathematically, at least personally contentious primary, became the first ever woman to be nominated by a major party for president of the United States, well on her way to breaking what she called the highest and hardest glass ceiling. How about those Republicans, Mike? <laughs> oh man, oh man, we got, we got, we got, we got them. Two and a half pages to go on this one. All right, 
So the race for the 2016 GOP nomination was considered like wide, wide open. It was so wide open, in fact, that 17 major candidates entered the race, making the largest presidential primary for any party in American history. At the time. At the time. Yeah. Yes. Those candidates were, and I'm going to take a deep breath here, former Texas Governor Rick Perry, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, former Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, former New York Governor George Pataki, former Pennsylvania Senator and 2012 runner-up Rick Santorum, former Virginia Governor Jim Gilmore, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former Hewlett-Packard CEO Carly Fiorina, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, former Florida Governor and George W. Bush's brother Jeb Bush, neurosurgeon conservative activist Ben Carson, Ohio Governor John Kasich, Florida Senator Marco Rubio, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, and of course, billionaire real estate mogul and reality television star Donald Trump. Trump grabs a lot of early headlines, specifically in regards to his comments on illegal immigration, where he famously said, when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. <laughs> people, <laughs> like, he throws I, that in. I would say, he, yeah. people cut out the last line, but that's not, like, a credit to him. <laughs> that's just, like, it's because it clearly, like, it's trying to do a lot of heavy lifting that it obviously did not do. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't really negate all the other stuff he said. <laughs> it's just like, this was obviously very controversial and resulted in him losing The Apprentice, an NBC TV show. Oh, no. And other deals with Macy's, NASCAR, Univision, which, yeah, and others. <laughs> uh, he quickly becomes the leader at the polls, however, and began pursuing other controversy and populist positions such as opposition to the TPP and other free trade initiatives, as well as a temporary ban on Muslims from entering the United States. I get into a lot of the other Trump stuff, like how his rallies became huge and occasionally violent and how he insinuated that Ted Cruz's father may have been involved in the JFK assassination, how his Twitter account basically called Heidi Cruz ugly, and how he almost got into a literal dick measuring contest with Marco Rubio. On stage. On like stage. During a debate. Yes. He hit my hands. Nobody has ever hit my hands. I've never heard of this one. Look at those hands. Are they small hands? And he referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee you. But, but let's actually get to like the primaries themselves, right? So by the time of the Iowa caucuses, the field had winnowed down to 12 candidates, and Ted Cruz pulled out a very, very narrow win over Trump, with Rubio, Carson, Paul, Bush, Fiorina, Kasich, and Huckabee all receiving at least one delegate. Past Iowa winners, Huckabee and Santorum, dropped out after the caucuses, as did Rand Paul, and a lot of people began to look at Marco Rubio to play the role of McCain or Romney in relation to Trump and Cruz, securing the nomination for the establishment away from two guys considered uh, conservative insurgents, or populist insurgents in the case of Donald Trump. Uh, this didn't bear out, as Trump won decisively in New Hampshire, with Kasich showing a surprise second-place finish, followed by Cruz, then by Bush, then by the highly touted Rubio, all the way in fifth place. Even after picking up South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley's endorsement, Rubio still failed to deliver in the Palmetto State, which gave Trump a double-digit victory. Rubio did finish second, though. Trump rolled on to Nevada, winning 46% of the vote, his larger share yet, with Rubio again finishing second. By Super Tuesday, Trump, Rubio, Cruz, and Kasich were enrolled in what had essentially become a four-person race, with Rubio and Cruz trying hard to gang up on Trump and take him down. It didn't work out, though, and Trump won seven of 11 contests, with Cruz and Rubio taking three and one state, respectively. This created a lot of panic, and some Republicans tried to draft Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan to enter the race <laughs> late and prevent a Trump nomination, but both declined. And Trump kept winning primaries, though Cruz was hot on his heels, and Rubio picked up wins in Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, not very big wins. Trump would go on to win every contest on Super Tuesday 2, with the exception of Kasich's home state of Ohio, which went to Kasich. 2 Super 2 Tuesday? Yes. <laughs> uh, this included Florida, which effectively killed the Rubio campaign. He was banking on Florida, and he absolutely went over like a lead balloon. He did not even come. Uh, and it made the campaign a three-person race between Trump, Cruz, and Kasich. The Never Trump movement came out in full swing behind Cruz because he was the most likely person to win after Donald Trump. But it's weird because like people don't really, Republicans don't like Ted Cruz. No, <laughs> but the enemy, my enemy is my friend, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So they really had nowhere else to go. Yeah. I, and I remember like after, maybe it was after the second Super Tuesday, it was after like a lot of, a, a day where there's a lot of primaries and Cruz being on TV and being like, I am the only one who can defeat Donald Trump. I mean, like, are you telling everyone else to drop out? He's like, I'm just saying I'm the only one who can beat him. It's like, okay, dude. Yeah. Anyway, they actually, like, willed him, spent, like, a ton of money to bring him to double-digit win in Wisconsin, 
He also won primaries in Colorado and Wyoming, and an overwhelming victory in Utah, which Trump was not very popular there. But Trump still won in Arizona, North Dakota, and the big prize, New York. Trump will go on to sweep the so-called Acela primary in Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and by this point it was too late for either Cruz or Kasich to win 1,237 delegates and clinch the nomination, so they tried to divide and conquer to prevent Trump from winning a majority of delegates and force a contested convention. This set up a big showdown in Indiana. Cruz picked up the endorsement of Indiana Governor Mike Pence, mm, and even <laughs> named Carly Fiorina as his running mate before he received the nomination. This is, like, unprecedented. This I don't think this has, like, ever happened before, where, <laughs> unless it's, like, an incumbent ticket, I don't actually think that someone who is in second place in the primary has said who they are going to choose as their running mate. Anyway, Cruz ended up outspending Trump by 4-1 to ratio in Indiana, but it wasn't enough, and Trump won the state's 57 delegates and clinched the nomination. Cruz dropped out of the race, making Fiorina's six-day VP campaign the shortest in American history. Kasich dropped out the next day, and most of the never-Trumpers fell in line and endorsed the presumptive nominee with Romney, the Bush family, and, briefly, Paul Ryan, the high-profile exceptions. And Kasich never endorsed Trump. No, he, he did still not. That is remains. true. Yeah. And his... I believe, as of this recording, is planning to endorse Joe Biden at the virtual DNC this year. Yeah. So, there you go. Trump became only the second presidential nominee from a major party to have no government or military experience, the first since Wendell Wilkie in 1940, and he won the lowest percentage of the popular primary vote, 44.9% to be exact, since Michael Dukakis won actually like 42% in 1988. Hmm. Interesting question for you. If this went to a contested convention, would Trump have won? I'd probably have to look at the delegate math. If he's only got like 40%, I think no. I think if he's got like 45%, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's probably just hard to say because we've never been alive for a contested convention, yeah. so who knows? I, I think if he has to make up like 10 points, I think the Kasich, Rubio, and Cruz are like, okay, let's make a deal. Yeah. We can't. Yeah. We'll yeah. Let, like, fine. Ted Cruz, we all hate you, but it's fine. Right. You can put Kasich as your VP. That's a deal. You promised Rubio Secretary of State. Let's go. Right. Very old yeah. school, kind of a nice way to do it. Yeah. yeah. But I think if Trump is within a few percentage points, I think it'd be a lot harder. I agree. All right. Those are our primaries. Let's move into reality. Who do they choose? chooses their running mates. So Clinton was looking for a running mate who could kind of step into the job as president, and she took a rather unusual path of kind of openly vetting people to the public. She held rallies and meetings with many of these folks on her shortlist. She ultimately settled, somewhat predictably, on Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, who of course we spent a lot of time talking about in our 2008 episode, as he was on the shortlist for Obama's running mate, and both Mike and I agreed, would have been our number one pick for Obama's running mate other than Biden. Yeah. Kane was described at the time as boring, wholesome, trustworthy, scandal-free, and from a swing state. These are great things for a vice presidential pick. And it's sort of the opposite of how people perceive Clinton. Kane had served as the senator of Virginia since 2013. He was previously the chair of the DNC and was the former governor and lieutenant governor of Virginia. With a Catholic upbringing in Overland Park, Kansas, Kane also held Middle America bona fides, and he was generally well-liked across the aisle. Arizona Republican Senator Jeff Flake tweeted out in support of Kane, quote, trying to count the ways I hate Tim Kane, drawing a blank, congrats to a good man and a good friend. Kane was reportedly always Clinton's first choice, going back to the early days of the primary, perhaps even before. Just because of his ability to step into the job if needed, the fact that his Senate seat would remain in Democratic hands, thanks to Virginia's Democratic governor and close Clinton friend Terry McAuliffe at the time, and that, that was like a big priority for Democrats, was getting control of the Senate back, which we'll talk about a lot later. And just his vanilla qualities. He was just considered to stand up, get the job done, kind of nice guy. We've talked about him. He's kind of like America's dad mm -hmm. that just Clinton and kind of everyone else seemed to get along with. So yeah, Democrats and Republicans are definitely emphasizing very different things yes. <laughs> this year. All right, so Trump would choose Indiana Governor Mike Pence, who himself was in the process of running for re-election. His Lieutenant Governor Eric Holpin would end up taking his place on a Republican ticket and go on to win the Indiana uh, governor's mansion. You'll remember, of course, that Pence endorsed Cruz in the primary. After two unsuccessful runs for Congress in 1988 and 1990, Pence began hosting a daily radio talk show that he described as Rush Limbaugh on decal. <laughs> As well as I, by the way, I'd rather invest like normal Rush Limbaugh. Like at least there's like some level of entertainment there. He also described himself as a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. 
He finally won a seat in the House in 2000, where he remained very conservative, even opposing the Bush administration's initiatives like No Child Left Behind and Medicare prescription drug expansion. He actually ran for House Minority Leader in 2008, calling for a return to the values of the Newt Gingrich-led Republican Revolution. <laughs> Which is ironic, because Newt Gingrich had been exposed for like several marriages yes. and whatnot yes. at this point. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. But he was, he was crushed by John Boehner, so I guess the Republicans agreed with you. He was, however, compensated with the Republican conference chair. and remained very popular with values voters, quote-unquote. And there was some buzz about him running for president in either 2008 or 2012. Didn't happen, though, but Mike Pence would, of course, be eventually be elected governor of Indiana in 2012. And he governed how you would have expected him to, making big budget cuts, pursuing tax cuts, and trying to rewrite the state curriculum to basically allow for the teaching of creationism in public schools and other kinds of religious conservative things. But he's probably best known for signing into law the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Now, what the law said was that the government could not, quote, burden a person's exercise of religion. And what many people interpreted this to be, and how many small business owners said they intended to exercise it was, that, say, small businesses like caterers, florists, or photographers could refuse to provide their services to a same-sex wedding, which, thanks to overview Hodges, is now legal across the country. This created a huge controversy. Corporations like Angie's List halted their expansion plans in Indiana, bands canceled concerts, and even prominent Indiana Republicans like Indianapolis Mayor Greg Ballard, former Senator Richard Aluger, and former Governor and Running Mates pick Mitch Daniels, who was also president of Purdue University at this time, hmm. criticized the bill, added Muslim, Jewish, and Sikh groups who were worried that it could lead to employment discrimination. To Pence's credit, he did eventually sign a follow-up bill that clarified that businesses would not be able to use the RFRA bill to discriminate against LGBT people, but his reputation as a leader of the religious right was already established. Described as sturdy and dependable, he was viewed as the perfect balance to Trump's vulgarities and unorthodox approach and a way to assuage the concerns any religious voters had about the new nominee. Well, and he had, like, federal experience, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He knew, he's a guy who, like, clearly knew what he was doing and seemed like a very, like, steady, like, low, low blood pressure dude. Anyway. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Too uh, low, even. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so the Trump campaign had intended to have a press conference announcing Pence's election on July 15th, but after a terrorist attack in France the, the day before they decided to hold off, but Trump tweeted out that he picked Pence anyway, <laughs> uh, letting the cat out of the bag kind of early. And in the days that followed the announcement, there were rumors that Trump had actually regretted his choice and had wanted to replace Pence already with either Newt Gingrich or Chris Christie, who were also on a short list. And I will talk about this maybe later. I can't even begin to describe how awful I think the two picks are for Trump. Pence is definitely the lesser of those three. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> but the campaign denied these reports that he was looking to replace Pence and ended up sticking with him anyway. All right. We've got Pence. We've got Kane. The vice presidential debate this year is obviously overshadowed by the record-breaking viewership of those truly extraordinary presidential debates. That did not stop the RNC, two hours before the vice presidential debate had even started, from accidentally declaring Pence the winner because of the strong points he made on the economy and Clinton's perceived scandals during the debate. They quickly took that down <laughs> since the debate had not yet happened, and the debate got underway. It was described as, quote, incomprehensible due to how frequently Kane and Pence would interrupt each other. You, you are Donald Trump, uh, Trump's apprentice. Uh, uh, let, let me talk about this Senator, issue I think, the, I, I think I'm still on my time. Well, Kane stressed Clinton's experience and how often she worked across the aisle. Pence stressed Trump's drive to overhaul Washington and talked up Trump's conservative credentials. This course being a thing a lot of people were very skeptical about. Pence also talked a lot about abortion and how Trump was so pro-life. Sure. <laughs> While Kane hit Trump for his business scandals, suspicious financial dealings, and admiration for authoritarian leaders. For our listeners in our modern times, you'll also enjoy these two tidbits. Pence promised that Trump would release his tax returns when his audit was over and asserted that there needed to be more federal support for law enforcement in this country. So, you know, here we are. <laughs> it should also be noted that Pence rarely ever actually defended Kane's frequent criticisms of Trump on morality, experience, etc., but instead just pivoted to other issues. When Donald Trump says Mexicans are rapists and criminals, you whipped out that Mexican thing again. He, look, can you defend it? There are criminal aliens in this country, Tim, who have come into this country illegally, who are perpetrating violence. It's prompted a lot of analysts to conclude that Pence was safeguarding his own political fortunes and trying to minimize exposure to the more scandal-ridden elements of his running mate in case Pence wanted to run for president in 2020. 
Reviews of the debate were mixed, with perhaps a narrow plurality of voters believing that Pence won overall, simply by virtue of being a bit more disciplined, whereas Kane was kind of interrupting all over the place. And it's a good thing that Pence didn't go on a limb in the debate about Trump's moral leadership or upstanding character, because three days after the vice presidential debate, a tape emerged of Trump bragging about his celebrity and how he could get away with sexually assaulting women. I moved on her like a bitch, but I couldn't get there, and she was married. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. This was called the Access Hollywood tape. And it was the most dangerous moment of the campaign for Trump. And dozens of prominent Republicans, including members of the Republican leadership, called for Trump to step down from the ticket and for Pence to become the nominee. Other guy on that tape, by the way, Billy Bush, yeah. nephew of George W. <laughs> yeah. Bush. He's gainfully employed still. There are some reports that Pence, being the upstanding Christian man that he is, almost left the ticket. And he did state publicly that he did, quote, not condone the remarks and cannot defend them. But he has denied that there was ever any chance that he would leave the ticket. Pence stepped away from campaign events for a little bit, and House Speaker and former running mate himself, Paul Ryan, uninvited Trump from his Wisconsin Fall Fest event. It's a big Paul Ryan bash out in Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, Republican National Committee Chairman Reince Priebus reportedly told Trump that he could drop out of the race now or lose in the biggest landslide in American history. And he told Trump that Pence was willing to take over the ticket with Condoleezza Rice as his vice presidential running mate for the good of the party. Trump, as you may be able to tell, did not in fact step down from the ticket, which is crazy. The leaders of your party are saying you need to step off the ticket. Yeah. Though Trump did apologize, and he powered through the remaining month before the election by drawing attention instead to the women who had accused Hillary Clinton's husband, Bill, of sexual misconduct, and deflecting by saying that Bill had done far worse. High disaffection from never-Trump Republicans and disgruntled Sanders supporters led to increased support for third-party candidates this year, as the favorability ratings for both Trump and Clinton were lower than for any other presidential nominees in modern history. This election became increasingly harsh, with each side appropriating the insults of the other, nasty women versus basket of deplorables. Trump called for Clinton to be imprisoned, while Democrats, especially the Obamas, sought a when-they-go-low-we-go-high approach to attempt to counter the increasing vitriol. Eleven days before the election, FBI Director James Comey informed the Congress that the FBI was analyzing additional Clinton emails as part of its investigation into her private email server, but days later ultimately concluded, as they had before, that there was no criminal wrongdoing. With all these turns in the month before the election and the incredibly divisive rhetoric, which is one candidate is calling for the other to be put in jail. You can't... Yeah. Anyway, with all that, many were very clearly relieved and anxious as election night reared its ugly head. Apologies once more for making you relive that night. Now you have some sympathy for me as I was researching it. <laughs> Results started to come in. A lot of us were sitting at bars thinking we were in for a really nice time. I was electioneering all day. And I was... Well, I don't know. I don't know if it would have been better for me to find out what had happened earlier or later like I did, but yeah, let's go. <laughs> well, let's see what happens. The results start to come in. Many of the battleground states are surprisingly too close to call. States like North Carolina, Ohio, Iowa, and Florida, which were all expected to be close, but probably somewhat Trump-leaning, were not the problem. States that were part of the so-called Blue Wall which included Midwestern states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, which Democrats had always won, even if occasionally by narrow margins since 1992, each went for Trump by under 1%, just under 80,000 total votes between all three, and delivered an Electoral College majority to Trump. Trump had assembled a coalition of rural voters, white men and women, Christians, and those with less than a college education. These groups were disproportionately overrepresented in the Electoral College. While Clinton, won the popular vote by 2%, running up far larger margins among minorities, city voters, and college-educated voters, those who are disproportionately underrepresented in the Electoral College. Clinton was hesitant to concede that night, even despite President Obama's urging, as margins were so slim and this was such a shock. By 2.30 in the morning, Trump was confirmed to have won a majority of the electoral votes. Clinton publicly conceded the next morning, This is painful and it will be for a long time. Donald Trump is going to be our president. We owe him an open mind and the chance to lead. 
this loss hurts, but please never stop believing that fighting for what's right is worth it. Though a slew of attempts to throw the election to the House of Representatives, especially as evidence came to light of Russian interference in the election to the benefit of Trump, took place. There were recounts in several close states, there was aggressive electoral college lobbying, and then there were several faithless electors in various states who cast votes for Colin Powell, Ron Paul, and John Kasich, making the 2016 election the election with the most candidates to receive electoral votes since 1796. Also, there was Faith Spotted Eagle, who was yeah. like a Native American rights activist. Uh, Bernie Sanders and also Bernie got Sanders. one. Yeah. Despite not breaking that highest and hardest glass ceiling, Hillary Clinton won more votes than any white man in American history and overperformed in diverse, formerly heavily Republican states like Arizona, Georgia, and Texas in an optimistic takeaway for Democrats. Only one Southern state voted for the Clinton-Kane ticket, that being Kane's home state of Virginia. And ultimately, her loss inspired an upswell of activism by women, resulting in what was the largest protest of all time until the George Floyd protest this year and record-breaking numbers of women running and winning office in 2018 ultimately delivering the most diverse Congress in American history. And we should say a trend that seems to have hold steady for this year. There's also yeah. going to be like a record number of like congressional elections that have like two major female candidates. Mm. That's, that's my optimistic takeaway. <laughs> I, I know, I know we have still not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling, but someday someone will, and hopefully sooner than we might think right now. And to all the little girls who are watching this, never doubt that you are valuable and powerful and deserving of every chance and opportunity in the world to pursue and achieve your own dreams. All right, we've now set the scene. <laughs> well, let's get into it. Mm -hmm. On to the main act. So Mike and I each came to the table with five alternative picks for Clinton's running main, five for Trump. This episode, in the part one, we're going to talk about Trump. Mike, I'll let you kick it off with the Trump picks. All right. So uh, for my first pick, I went with Jan Brewer, former governor of Arizona, and a, another uh, governor in the center of a controversial state law. This, so this is the choice you make if you really, really, really want to make immigration the issue of the election, which is what I think Trump did and, and what he effectively did. Like I think his statements about Mexican immigrants changed the conversation of that that's what he made the campaign about he made the campaign about him and about immigration and it's because brewer is probably most known for signing arizona sb 1070 into law which made it a misdemeanor to be an alien in arizona who was not carrying required so basically that was already a federal offense to some degree but this also made it a state offense as well and of course the only way to enforce that law is for officers to try and figure out whether or not a person, whether or not they had reason to believe a person was an illegal alien or not, which basically opened the door to a lot of racial profiling concerns. They could pull over a person, and if they looked Mexican or not legal immigrant y enough, then that gave them just cause enough to ask for their papers, essentially. That are your papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> Parts of the law would be struck down at the Supreme Court, which is a very controversial thing. Um, she also took a lot of paleoconservative positions, like banning the teaching of ethnic studies classes in Arizona high school and repealing a provision that treated homosexual domestic partners like dependents for state employees. She would actually wind up embracing Obamacare Medicaid expenses after she joined a group of states that were suing against the individual mandate. She actually did kind of pivot on that. But hey, this would not be the first time a Republican candidate on the ticket changed their mind about health care <laughs> to appeal to a conservative base. So who knows? Like I said, uh, she's a woman and uh, Trump, even though he does win white woman, probably is most concerned about that demographic as well as Latinos. She's very conservative. She has a record on immigration. That, to me, is the convincing argument. Arizona, not as swingy as it feels now, but... 3.5%. Yeah, yeah. But very cool. That was a surprising thing that yeah. happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's my pitch for Jan Brewer. So, talking about Arizona, does picking someone from Arizona, which was thought to be, like, a pretty... That's a red state right there. Yeah, yeah. Does it 
give the impression of Republicans being scared of losing it. Is it, a, is it an acknowledgement of like, oh, this Trump version of the Republican Party is not going to play with those people? <laughs> I, did people think that when he picked Pence, who was from also a very red state? But, nah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. I, yeah. I think people view it as like, oh, they want to make immigration an issue. I, I think immigration and female candidate are the headline before Arizona. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Immigration is the issue. Does anyone doubt how Trump feels on immigration? No, but why, why not hammer it home? Why not just like commit to the bit? Is she a little Palin-esque? Maybe a little bit. Would you bit. have, like, a Palin problem? Yeah, but she's also done more than Palin. Yeah, she was in office a lot and, and, yeah, and she was also, like, she was the state secretary of state. Interesting yeah. fact, she, I guess Arizona does not have lieutenant governors, so when Janet Napolitano became secretary of Homeland Security, she ascended to the governorship. Hmm. Because that's that's the line of succession is that the secretary of state, when there's a vacancy, becomes governor. Which I wonder if the Obama camp knew that when they picked Jane Napolitano. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I so yeah, maybe there's some Palin potential, uh, and they do kind of look alike. She's like blonde though, but yeah, I don't know. My biggest gripe with this pick, yeah, she has no federal experience. That is true. I, I think you're going to struggle with the least qualified presidential candidate since Wilkie in the <laughs> '40s. To not have someone who's worked a day in Congress. Yeah, I, I guess you might, but I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I understand. <laughs> this would be an administration that has no idea what's going on. Well, he he had uh, Rance Priebus. <laughs> yeah. But who called for him to be removed from the ticket? That's true. This is like you're going into office. You're you're campaigning, knowing that half of your party hates you. Right. I mean, they don't end up hating you, but at the time, you would at least mm-hmm. be inclined to think that. And having no idea how to run a government because you've never been elected before, and you're choosing a governor who's never worked in Washington. It, it, if you were Trump, and I don't want to try and get inside his head too much because God knows <laughs> what's, what's in there, is that not maybe a little appealing in the sense that it's like Mike Pence was ready to, according to Rance Priebus at least, Mike Pence was ready to take over from Trump on the ticket. Yeah. And Mike Pence, I wouldn't vote for him, but he makes enough sense as a nominee right. that that's fine. If you have someone like Brewer, does it make that temptation less appealing? If you have someone like Brewer, is it not a little bit of insurance policy against people calling for you to be removed from the ticket yeah. because they, mu- they they won't be as eager to pick someone like that to replace them? That's such a dangerous game. It is. Yeah. It is. <laughs> it is. But um, hey, he's a dangerous man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I She's at number five. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Number five. Um, this, was, this was a hard one to pick because a lot of people said they were not going to. Right. It, it's just the the Trump picks in general because we're all over the place just looking ahead here. Yeah. It's just such an like. What do you need? I mean, right. we'll talk. We'll talk later. Well, a lot, but you I need guess a lot. That's the, yeah. that's the problem. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think so. My number five. I, I think this is an interesting election. Obviously, <laughs> I think this election is unique in that it's it is it is close in the literal sense. It is not close in the electoral college sense, right? Yeah. Is it's like a three hundred four to two hundred twenty-seven electoral college victory, and no one state can deliver Clinton a win unless there are no faithless electors. If she wins Texas, it's exactly two hundred seventy votes. Mm-hmm. But like realistically, no state can deliver Clinton a win, right? It's the fact that Trump ran up very small margins in three states. Yeah. So it's like a, it's an interesting place to start. Is that you can't you can't just like pick someone from a state, mm-hmm. right? It's, I don't know. It's also Trump, so I have no idea. Right. Yeah. So my number five, I went with Trey Gowdy, a representative from South Carolina. He is most famous for chairing the House's Benghazi committee in the years leading up to the 2016 election. My choice here is like you really want some overkill. You know, Mike is talking about driving home immigration with Jan Brewer. I'm talking about you want to drive home her emails, Benghazi, that whole shit storm. I think you throw Gowdy in there. You know, a former federal prosecutor. Many praised him for his legal mind and his tactics, even if they ultimately amounted to not. It's funny. It's like funny weird, not funny haha. Because the Benghazi committee, of course, chartered by Republicans, run by Republicans, for the barefaced purpose of toppling Clinton's presidential aspects, ultimately published a report in 2016, before the election, that there was no wrongdoing. <laughs> it's just like, they they had everything going for them, and they just couldn't, like, find a legal whatever. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, I think Trey Gowdy, like Trump, you know, he's continued to make these baseless demands to prosecute Clinton. He's like a social and fiscal conservative with Washington experience. I think that helps. And yeah, he's just like explicitly out to get Clinton. So you kind of, you, you, you satisfy the ideological and the experience thing there. And you also take a very Trumpian path in being like making this about Hillary and how she's evil in her emails. Okay, so sort of like what you said about Jan Brewer 
yeah, Gowdy by this point is like a three-term congressman. He is also a three-term congressman. Does that give you like a little bit of concern? Uh, he had been a federal prosecutor for years as well. Sure. I, I don't know. I feel like you have to really be sure about like a representative if you're going to make them the VP. I agree. I hate picking reps as VPs. Yeah. I, I just think it's a way it's like if Trump hates federal people, right? This is why I think Mike Pence is actually like low-key a pretty good pick. Is it's like is an outsider pick who like used to be an insider, right, but yeah. now like no one thinks of Mike Pence, the congressman, the like, you know, third highest ranking Republican in Congress. Right, right. They think of him as or in the House, they think of him as like governor. The governor who hated gay people. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which is clever, because you get everything. Mm-hmm. I think Trey Gowdy's kind of a way to do that too, where it's like he's only been in Congress three years and he spent all of it going after Hillary's emails. Mm. So he's sort of an outsider with experience in Congress. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't know. Yeah, it's I, like you don't want sure. Trump's not going to pick like a guy who's been in Washington 50 years. If you're Trump, I don't think you want to pick a guy who's mm. been in Washington for 50 years. Yeah. Are you aware that Trump said that Gowdy failed miserably on Benghazi and basically blamed him for I, I did, but I think you have them campaign together and then it's like look at all the stuff that he found. I mean, this is the committee that found her emails that had no wrongdoing. <laughs> yeah. He was also later considered as a replacement to James Comey when he was dismissed by Trump. Oof. That as director of the FBI. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I get it. And I guess it is kind of like what I was saying before, just like double down on that one issue. Don't love the idea of putting a three-term representative in that. No, I, I don't either. I think the the way Trump wins this election is by making it about Hillary, right? Mm. It's like she makes it about him, but at the end of the day, it's who do voters dislike the most? Yeah. And who do the independents believe is most moderate? Mm. When Trump makes it about Clinton and not about experience or issues or policy, that's how I think he wins. Yeah. And I think this is a way to like keep all of the focus on Hillary Clinton. Right. Instead of actually having to like explain yourself. Mm. That's my number five. My number four, kind of like taking a complete right turn or left turn, I guess, is Brian Sandoval, the governor of Nevada. And this is the choice you make if you want to try and execute the Republican autopsy plan. That we talked a lot about it last episode. Yes, he's Latino, he's from a swing state, and he has moderate positions on abortion, Obamacare, immigration, renewable energy. Very non-controversial, very moderate. It's like his picture on Wikipedia, he's wearing a denim shirt, just looks very chill. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this... I don't think Trump ever would have actually done this because I just think he's too moderate. Yeah. And I think if you got a guy who's... He likes Obamacare so much that when he appoints Dean Heller to be senator, he basically tells Dean Heller to not vote for the repeal of Obamacare, and Dean Heller does it. Like, Sandoval really liked Obamacare, and he liked it enough. This is just... If you truly believe that the way for the Republican Party to flourish in the future... And, like, there is... I think there's an argument to be made that it could be that, like, the Trump path of the Republican Party, it may have won the battle. I think there's an argument to make that it may lose with a war in a few years mm. by, like, failing to embrace and openly antagonize non-white voters. Right. Like, good luck getting his- Hispanic voters back. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Which, as Biden sort of poorly stated a few days ago, are not a monolith. And, mm. you know, Hispanic voters in Florida are much different than those in Arizona or Texas. Yeah. Or California, for that matter. But I think Sandoval, he's, I don't know, he's, he's, just kind, of, he's kind of like a Latino Romney. Maybe the hair? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Maybe, like, a little more personable. And, and I think if you, if you want to not go down the dark path and go down the path of trying to, like, maybe rehabilitate Trump's image a little bit, you go with Sandoval. And he's from a swing state, which, without early voting, there's a good chance Nevada would have gone for Trump. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah, it's under 2.5% for Clinton. Very close pickup for Trump. Yeah, yeah. Not a huge state. Not a lot of electoral votes there. Hmm. Um, I mean, I gotta say the same thing. There's no federal experience here. Sure. I'm like really, I'm really obsessed with that because I just, I I think it's hard to justify walking into Washington with someone with two people who have never worked there. I mean. How would you know your way around? I I guess so. Where's the bathroom? I don't know. Yeah. Have you, you, because this is a thing you would know, are, is there, has there been like a ticket with like no federal experience recently? No. That's what we've talked about this several times on the show. There's never been a zero federal experience ticket in the modern era. Okay. Yeah. It, it, does, it just does not happen. Mm-hmm. And so you, you pick a lot of governor-governor tickets. I do. Why not, man? <laughs> it, I don't know. It, it angers me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is odd, because I do think people generally, maybe less so now, is like Trump is very ideologically fluid. Yeah. It's like, I don't... Other well, than like hating immigrants... And, like, weird shit that he doubles down on, like the Central Park Five. Mm-hmm. I, I think he would just, like, say, I don't know. I don't think he really cares. I, I remember shortly after he won, and I was working at, like, a, 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 a,
you know, on some level, isn't it better to have Trump as president than Pence? Because you can tell Trump to do whatever, right? Like he, <laughs> great. you know, he certainly is, yeah, like more malleable and, and kind of elastic and prone to suggestion than Pence, who is like the hardcore conservative. I think this was just liberals trying to sort of like make themselves feel better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do wonder now, because I'm not sure, I don't know. I'm not sure the degree to which I believe he's ideologically malleable now i do wonder about just how liberal sandoval is mm-hmm. there was that week in like 2017 where trump had the meeting with schumer and they got along really well and i was like oh my god things could have like trump could like what if trump befriends schumer and hates mcconnell and like there was that week where like trump was like maybe i'll just be an independent president yeah you remember that yeah. <laughs> it was like oh my god mm-hmm. I, I think if anything he's if not doubled like quadrupled down yeah since then a pro-choice, pro-immigration, pro-Obamacare mm-hmm. running mate seems a problem for Trump. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I just okay. like Brian Sandoval, I guess. So. Yeah, he seems, he seems cool. A Kasich Sandoval ticket would make sense. Yes, that that I get. But, like, and I mean, do you think Trump needs to prove his conservative credentials to the right? This is a good point to have that. I, well, that's clearly what the party thought, or he thought, because yeah. when he picked Pence... I don't know. I honestly don't know. Just because he does so well with, like, evangelicals. And I think of evangelicals, or the ones who would maybe, like, put the biggest premium on things like that. I think that he was able to turn conservatism into something different. Yeah. And you talked about him him banding about the idea of, like, I'm going to be, like, an independent president and, like, not really a Republican. I think that, for all we know, he didn't change it all to please Republicans, but Republicans may have changed to please him. Yeah, I think that is what happened. I think that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. And so... By becoming de facto leader of the party, I think he actually had like a pretty. He had a big mandate to basically turn the party to what he wanted to turn it into. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I also just think like the Republican voter is so homogeneous that it doesn't. They're going to show up anyway. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of the yeah. general yeah. rule. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I don't know. All right. My number four, I went with David Perdue, uh, senator from Georgia. Big name in business down south, actually. He's also a guy who stood by Trump even through the Access Hollywood scandal. He told his fellow Republicans to, quote, keep the faith and remember what we were after. I do think he's pretty green. You know, he's only been senator since 2015. But I do think there's, like, a background resemblance with Trump. And that he's just, like, this big businessman, (laughs) probably an actually successful businessman, who then just kind of became, (laughs) like, a federal office holder. He was VP of Sarah Lee. Yeah. And CEO of Dollar General. Yeah, right? (laughs) And it's just, like, clearly there's, like, some symbiosis here, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, he just, he stood by Trump during, like, the worst moment. Like, just say nothing, right? Mm -hmm. At that point, it's just like, oh, I don't know. But he, like, went out and said, keep the faith. Remember Mm -hmm. what we're after. Georgia, of course, ultimately goes for Trump by about 5%, which is closer than Georgia's been in two decades. But it is one of the only 11 states to move in Democrats' direction in 2016. I think Trump wins it, obviously, without Purdue, because he did. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's there's rumblings down there. Yeah. I mean, it's considered a battleground state this year, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I would quibble with his lack of experience, I guess, but I mean... <laughs> now you sound like me. Exactly, yeah. And, and I'm going to pick someone who has about the exact same experience in the Senate, yeah. um, but a bit more in Congress. My other thing I would say is that... So Mike Pence is not a young man, but he's younger than Donald Trump. Dave Perdue right now, as we speak, is 70. Donald Trump is 74. It's a pretty old ticket. That's true. That, that is a pretty old ticket. You. I didn't really think about that. I don't, I don't even know that that necessarily comes up. I do think it's weird how little age actually came up. Mm. It comes up, like, a lot now because of mm. Biden and Trump are both... Well, what, what, Clinton was around the same age, right? She was... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I think that's probably why... But, like, Biden and Trump are around the same age, and now it's coming up. Part of that is by Trump's design. Well, Biden would also be the oldest president. Oldest at the time of inauguration. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't really think about that. I don't know. He's a, he's a number four. Okay. My number three is oh, uh, Lord. Tom Cotton, <laughs> senator from Arkansas. This is the pick if you, you make if you think Trump is for sure the future of the Republican Party, and you want to kind of either set someone up for the post-Trump administration to, to, to be a successor, or maybe you just want to give exposure to someone who you want to run in 2020. Uh, He's young, conservative, and crazy. Uh, He he was, (laughs) as how I would describe him. He was a favorite of both the establishment and the Tea Party early on in his career when he was also a congressman for Arkansas. Uh, He was a big critic of SNAP, the the welfare program, as well as the Iran deal. He gets on a lot of different things. For conservatives, he even provides Trump some foreign policy credentials. He was a veteran and was on the Armed Services Committee. He was also just kind of like a massive dick and really hated Obama. (laughs) 
So there is this whole situation where Obama nominated a White House lawyer to be ambassador to the Bahamas. Her name was Cassandra Butts. And Cruz and Cotton basically worked to deny her, I think, even like a hearing. And when asked why, it is alleged that Cotton said that he wanted to inflict special pain on Obama. And by the way, Butts died while this was all being held up. Oh my god. Yeah. So he certainly solidifies the right-wing vote. And he can stump for Trump on policies in a more traditional conservative package. He, he's a good sort of, I guess, bridge between Trump and the more traditional conservative movement. And he'll also, as we've seen these past four years... Follow Trump down any stupid rabbit hole he dumbs into. He will say, yes, we should buy Greenland. Yes, we should deploy federal troops into United States cities. He will do all of it. Yeah. So he's a good soldier, too. Very much a shell. Yes. Yeah, he's like a scary boy. <laughs> he's, he is... Tom Cotton scares it, the shit out of me. It's so weird. So, like, people talk about, like, Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley as kind of, like, the emergent, like, far right wing of the Republican Party, right? At least Joss Hawley talks about, like, wanting people to be happy. Yeah. And his, his version of happiness just involves a theocratic government that maybe does pay for health care and do other things, but it's still, like, a theocratic government, whereas Tom Cotton is... He, he seems more... He said there was an, yeah. an under-incarceration problem in the United States, which I believe has the highest percentage of an incarcerated population, yeah. possibly outside of North Korea. He just seems to really hate people. Like, I don't really <laughs> yeah. get his deal, but it works with the Republicans, apparently. I don't know. Yeah, in... in I remember in October of 2016, when it, like, very much seemed like Trump was going to lose... The Economist did, like, a really good article about, like, Tom Cotton and how he's, like, the future of the Republican Party because he could blend kind of, like, full-blown Trumpism with, like, a suit and, like, he, he with the more, like, hawkish, small government aspects of the party. So it's, like, a blend of Trumpism and, like, Bushism almost. Their, like, tagline was, like, if Harvard did populism. Yeah. And it's, like, that's I, that makes sense to me. It's, like, if Trump put on slightly bigger boy pants mm-hmm. and wore a tie that wasn't like childishly too big for him Mm -hmm. and like presented himself as like it's like scary i think this is a scarier way where it's like at least trump (laughs) looks the part right it's Mm -hmm. like tom cotton i think he could walk into a room look like any other senator but like ruin everything right well yeah there are people who think trump is crazy it would take a while for a lot of people to realize cotton is crazy right (laughs) he could be a psychopath i don't know (laughs) he is also very young he started in the house in 2013 so he's only been in Congress three years. That is true. Yeah. I, I think he makes sense and will definitely run for president in four yeah. years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. My number three, I went with Kathy McMorris-Rogers, chair of the House Republican Conference, representative from Washington. She is the highest ranking Republican woman in Congress. You get some geographic diversity, picking someone in the Northwest. You get some gender diversity, another, you know, a woman be good for Mm -hmm. trump to have a woman in his life that he didn't pay it also serves to i think normalize trump it's like you're this you're putting like a prominent ranking republican woman you know it normalizes him politically and with female voters she was also you know ideologically i I think that's a okay mix crusader against obamacare for republican causes because she was the chair of the republican conference then yeah you get a glut of experience and policy chops on capitol hill but it's not like she's been around 50 years right Mm mm-hmm yeah. Do you worry about the fact that she is from a state that is not going to go for Trump at all? Or is not even close? <laughs> not really. Because like I said, that's the weird part. Is like this election is technically close. You have to pick a statement pick, not a state pick, I think, for Trump. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's like Indiana was never really in question. Right. You need someone who means something, like inexperience, etc. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I do think she could also... You, you talk about sort of Trump having to prove his conservative bona fides, and I think Kathy McMorris-Rogers helps sell what what some people may have viewed as the more conservative-deficient parts of the Trump experience. <laughs> I think she helps sell them better. I, I think of, like, LGBT rights, where it's like, mm. she does not think that gay marriage should be legal, but she also, when she talks about it, talks about it in a way where it's like, well, but it's also a state issue, and, like, yeah. we have more important things to worry about, right? Yeah. And I think that was also kind of Trump's take on a lot of LGBT issues as well, even if the policies of his executive branch don't always reflect it. And so I think that kind of helps, right? Where it's like she, she would be good at sort of recentering the priorities of the party in a less chaotic way than Trump right, did. Right. Right. She is maybe a steadier hand to have at the wheel. Yeah, I don't know. I guess for me, it, it's, it's partly like a name recognition thing. 
and, and it's a state thing, it's a region thing, so I don't know. Not not a bad pick, just you know, I'm still kind of uh, worried about picking <laughs> representatives. Alright, number two. So number two, I went with Shelley Moore Capito, Senator from West Virginia, the first Republican to be elected to the Senate from West Virginia since the nineteen fifties. West Virginia politics are weird, man. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> so she's, you know, a woman. She's from one of the Trumpiest states in the country. But yeah, she, she's she's conservative, but not too conservative. She sponsored the Gender Advancement and Pay Act that was meant to sort of like close the salary disparity gap for equal pay. She has like a mixed record on LGBT rights, um, but she's very tough on immigration issues. Just a, you know, another sort of like conservatively acceptable pick for Trump. Again, from a, a state that Trump doesn't need help in. But again, helps shore up the sort of maybe more sweatier parts of the party's base. Uh, yeah, I also have Shelley Moore Capito as my number two. West Virginia is literally the state that gives Trump the highest percentage of the vote in this election. But I think, yeah, it also speaks to his base, like Appalachia, Middle America, places that feel left behind, perhaps. And yeah, putting the first Republican elected as senator of West Virginia since the Eisenhower administration, who is also a woman, is kind of like indicative of Trump's future and like what his area is. These are states that are clear Clearly, just this now. And I think, yeah, it alleviates a major weakness of his when it comes to women's issues. Now, the weird part here, he chooses Capito and they win. The governor of West Virginia is Jim Justice, who is a Democrat at this time and will change once Trump wins the White House. What happens? <laughs> I don't know. Well, so, no, the, so the thing is, Justice is also elected in 2016. Governor before him? It was a Democrat. It was Earl Ray Tomlin. Okay. Well, either way, you have a Democrat as governor in this time. Right, but it's like a West Virginia Democrat. Right. Like a guy who's avowedly anti-abortion, Earl Ray Tomlin. But like what, so one of these two guys <laughs> is going to have to replace her. What What? I, what I, happens? I have no idea. This it, is so it would weird. be fascinating. Yeah. That's why I find West Virginia weirdly fascinating politically, because they've been very Democratic, but they've also been very conservative at the same time. Yeah. And yet, the last time they voted for a Democrat was 1996 for president, was also the last time they elected a Republican as governor. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> weird place. So yeah, do do it for that reason enough. It'd just be a fascinating But like, wh- what if it's a risk and like you lose the Senate because you chose Capito? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, number one, Mike. I went with another person with zero federal experience. Uh, <laughs> Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin. I think of him as the Agnew to Trump's Nixon, a combative governor who can play the everybody hates me too, but I speak for the silent majority card. He survived a recall election. He can credibly claim to not be a college-educated elite. He never actually <laughs> finished his degree at Marquette. And is tough on things like unions and accepting massive amounts of money from the Department of Transportation <laughs> to better your state's infrastructure. He's from a swing seat too. He's a heel. Trump is a heel. Just go full heel. Just like become just nasty just like throw literally throw red meat into the crowd scott walker is this tea party darling he's the only governor to survive a recall he's the only governor to survive a recall he just takes these very unpopular positions <laughs> that just seem to make no sense in I, a pretty purple state in a pretty purple yeah so why not i don't know conservatives like him liberals hate you you're gonna piss off so many liberals it's gonna make them so it's gonna trigger so many libs man just like do it i don't know i also think trump doesn't like scott walker based on what in that scott walker like very much went out on a limb during the wisconsin primary to like not endorse trump walker also in june before the access hollywood thing but after Trump's comments on Judge Gonzalo Curiel, hmm. like, unendorsed Trump. Hmm. And Trump doesn't make his VP decision for a little bit here after that. Yeah. I think that. Trump would be like, well, clearly not you. <laughs> yeah, plus no federal experience. Plus Trump doesn't like him, thinks he's a major loser. I don't know. I do like where you're going mm-hmm. with, like, the, the Agnew. It does make sense on the surface if you had federal experience with Scott Walker, I think. Like Spiro Agnew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least Nixon had been vice president true, for true. eight years That's true. and the senate and house before. yeah yeah <laughs> scott walker is just just like quite a guy yeah yeah i i i don't i mean trump already wins wisconsin do you really need him barely wins would wisconsin, wisconsin still want that's him? a good question because yeah. he did lose re-election yeah. two it was years close later. it was close though no very close in a pretty like democratic leaning year yeah <laughs> i don't know i do think scott walker is indicative of where wisconsin's going is is 
Well, clearly, it's like Wisconsin is not the blue bastion it used to be. Yeah, it is not Robert M. Lafollette's Wisconsin anymore. Right. It's, uh, things have gotten bitter. Yeah. And Scott Walker may actually be behind that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My number one, I went for a more, uh, we'll say moderate pick. I went with John Huntsman, the former ambassador to China under President Obama, former governor of Utah, former ambassador to Singapore, and the deputy U.S. trade representative. Huntsman is like a big name in U.S. foreign policy and would, of course, become the U.S. ambassador to Russia for President Trump. It's a pretty big ambassadorship if you're uh, Trump. <laughs> yeah. He's also, I use this word a lot, indicative of a vision of the Republican Party that has kind of totally fallen away. Once, after he dropped out of the 2012 Republican primary where he ran for president, he remarked that there was a need for a third party in America and announced that he would not be attending the RNC. He was reportedly the candidate that Obama was most worried about facing in 2012, actually. Because he knew where all the bodies were buried. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he worked for him. Yeah. Huntsman is, is, is like a guy, just like a skosh more moderate than Romney, I think, who delivered tax reform in Utah. You know, he got health care reform in Utah and was somewhat actually in favor of an individual health care mandate. He believed in climate change. And he believed there needed to be action to combat it. He called for compassionate immigration reform. But he also has a lengthy business career. And he's got religious credibility as he is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. But here's where it gets weird. Huntsman also endorsed Trump in April of 2016 and believed that he was the person that the party should get behind. The primary's not over at this point, yeah, right? Yeah. He probably saw the writing on the wall. Mm. And though Huntsman did retract that endorsement after the Access Hollywood tape, which remember is months later, a month before the general election and would have been after the VP selection for our case, he then came back around and praised Trump's non-traditional foreign policy rhetoric and style, and then of course came on to be the ambassador to Russia, which is a very big deal considering what is going on with Trump there. All of that is a little weird, and it makes me question the perceptions of John Huntsman that we've had. Mm -hmm. It's also just like the ultimate Republican Party unity ticket. You give Trump credibility on foreign policy, who not a lot of our picks are foreign policy picks, actually, which is ironic because Trump has zero foreign policy experience. It also buffets him in a state that does not like Trump at all. Trump only gets 45% of the vote in Utah, though he does win it, and that's because of a third party run by McMullen. Evan McMullen. Uh, McMuffin. He also, Huntsman, I think, would make people a bit more comfortable and, like, normalize Trump. Mm. It would be an endorsement both of his style, which Huntsman praised, and his approach, while keeping the establishment in line and kind of poking Obama and Huntsman's former boss, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, while at it. I love it. Trump Huntsman. Yeah. I don't get why, like, I don't know. John Huntsman makes no sense to me. Yeah. Like, I guess you don't turn down a job from the president if it's offered to you. I don't get why he worked for Obama and then tried to run against Obama and then endorsed Trump. He's, he's just an And left the Republican Party, kind of, or like at least yeah. refused to go support yeah. Mitt Romney, who's from... Apparently Huntsman and Romney have like this rivalry that goes back years, which I had no idea. And it's weird because if you had asked me in 2012 who I like better, I'd have said John Huntsman. But if you asked me out, I would definitely say Mitt Romney. Right, right. Because one of them never endorsed the president and the other did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. Do you worry that... I, I just don't know where to begin here. Do you worry that maybe this is... Like, picking a moderate LDSer and a populist with verbal diarrhea who has no apparent <laughs> religious convictions. Do you, do you think that alienates parts of, of, of the conservative base, specifically the religious right? I mean, Pence is a conservative religious guy. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it sort of, I kind of think it does the opposite. Is I think putting Huntsman there, you get the religious side, that's great, because I don't think Trump is religious. No. I guess people perceive him that way or his supporters do but i think it kind of makes trump's credibility as a conservative better is it's <laughs> like it's kind of a contrast right interesting is it's like trump is saying anti-immigration stuff huntsman's along for the ride but it's mm -hmm. like yeah you know i wasn't always there but like this trump guy he's got new ideas that's interesting but yeah it's almost like hey look i gotta take this guy along for the ride to keep all those like moderates in washington happy right but I'm still your champion. Right. And I'll make sure he never never does too much. <laughs> right. That's an interesting little gambit there. Uh, yeah, I, why, why not? <laughs> why not, right? I mean, I guess at this point, Huntsman has been out of a government job for a little bit. Yeah. So maybe, like, you want someone who's, like, done more recent things. Right. But... Yeah. And I was, like, going through names, and I was, like, trying to find people for him, and I, like, stumble on John Huntsman, I was like, oh, there's no way the Huntsman ever, like, supported Trump. And I was like, oh, my God, he endorsed him in April? Yeah. What? And then I, like, dug into it, and I was like, oh, my God. Well, this seems like a no-brainer. So that's why he's my number one. 
Okay. All right. Those are our Trump picks. As for trends for those, well, I went with mostly insiders. You had some governors with no Washington experience, Mike. <laughs> this is just such an odd... It's just this Trump guy, eh? This, yeah. this is weird. As for who Trump actually considered, well, we know that retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon, and Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions were on a list, and that Trump really wanted John Kasich, like really wanted John Kasich, but Kasich refused. Speaking of people who, who refused, so I made a whole list of people who very explicitly said no, because a lot of these seem like no-brainers as well. Let me just run through these quickly. Rob Portman, Nikki Haley, Ben Carson, Rick Scott, John Kasich, Bob Corker, Joni Ernst, Susanna Martinez, Marco Rubio, Condoleezza Rice, and probably Paul Ryan, just not explicitly. Trump's reported final three were New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, and of course, Mike Pence. So Mike, let's wrap this episode up. What did happen with Pence after this election? Well, he obviously was elected vice president. And he played a big role in Trump's transition team. He acted as a liaison between the inexperienced Trump camp and the congressional Republicans, kind of like how you would probably draw it up. As of 2019, he cast 13 tie-breaking votes in the Senate, including on the confirmation of Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, as well as a bill that would defund Planned Parenthood and the first ever tie-breaking vote to confirm a judicial nominee. Those 13 votes are more than were cast by his four predecessors combined. Because the Senate's close. Yeah. He found himself in the middle of controversy after attending an Indianapolis Colts game and then walking out of it when some players knelt during the national anthem and was widely derived as a publicity stunt. He took like a helicopter there and he was there for like five seconds. He also came up in the Trump impeachment inquiry having made two phone calls until he won in person meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. During that time period where U.S. funding aid that may or have not been tied to investigation of Hunter Biden was like being withheld from Ukraine. Hmm. Uh, Pence denies that they talked about Biden at all during that meeting. Pence is probably best known now for being the leader of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, which, given the current state of affairs, seems like he's been doing a bang-up job. <laughs> such a good job that he refused to follow hospital rules at the Mayo Clinic when he visited and refused to wear a mask, saying that he didn't do so because he wanted to be able to look Steph in the eye. Which begs the question, <laughs> what the hell kind of mask was he wearing that was going to cover up his eyes? Wearing like a sock over his eyes. Like, yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> he would never be that vocal and be like, well, I don't get it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, odd guy. And that is the first half of our 2016 show. You can stay tuned next week to hear our picks for Hillary Clinton and our big conclusions on the 2016 election and the VP picks. In the meantime, you can find us everywhere that podcasts are found, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. And you can find all of our works on thepostwriter.com, including our Running Mates portal for all your vice presidency-related needs. In the meantime, I have been Lars Emerson. And I'm Michael Vito. And we will catch you on the part two of this episode next week. Thanks for listening.